In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So our texts this morning confront us with the responsibilities that we have to each other. We often think about community, or at least I often talk about community, in terms of how it forms and shapes us. Christianity isn't a solo sport, and we know that the community of faith is a source of sanctification, growth, and comfort. They are the ones who mourn with us as we mourn, the ones who pray for us when we can't pray for ourselves. But in order for the church to be a place where we can find ourselves cared for like this, there are things that we owe each other. A theme that runs throughout scripture is the seriousness of sin. It is the cold that runs contrary to the warmth of God, the nothingness that's pit against God's something. It is that which deforms us. And because sin is not neutral, it can't be left undealt with. So, in the Old Testament, God sends his prophets to point out and name the sin among his people so that they might turn from sin and return to him. In our reading from Ezekiel, the prophet hears of his responsibility to God and to Israel. God has placed Ezekiel as a watchman, one who sees the future consequence of Israel's sin. Like a diagnosis, Ezekiel has to deliver bad news so that the remedy can be brought. The instructions Ezekiel receives are clear in verses 8 and 9. God tells him, If I say to the wicked, O wicked ones, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from their ways. The wicked shall die in iniquity, but their blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and they do not turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Simply put, if you say nothing, if you do not warn the people so that they can turn from their evil ways, then their persistence in sin is your fault. If you fail to warn the people, they may die from their sin, but the blame is yours. The implications of this are significant. The next verses reveal God's attitude towards these sinful people. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God wants people to repent, to turn away from the destructive patterns of sin and be restored. So Ezekiel must speak. As a generally conflict-averse person, these words are frankly pretty scary for me. And when I receive it as a law, as nothing more than another rule I have to follow, it can feel paralyzing. Thankfully, there is help to be found in my paralysis, not in releasing me from the requirement, but to help me follow through with it. Our passage from Matthew builds on the necessity of confronting sin that we read about in Ezekiel. Matthew 18 is the famous pattern for how to address sin in the church. It's simple enough. If you have a problem with someone, you go to them individually, then with a few others, then in front of the whole community. And if they persist, you have to exclude them. It's helpful for me to look closely at the motivations behind Jesus' instructions here. If the one-on-one -on -one interaction goes well, Jesus says, you have regained that one. What's at stake here is the community itself. Sin is never truly private. It affects all of us. So the one who is persistent in their sin is excluded from the community. That's why sin must be addressed. Matthew 18 isn't just about how to air your grievances. 
It's about how to take care of spiritual infection within the community. It's why leaders are held to an even higher standard. In the Old Testament, shepherds who lead sheep astray are judged most harshly. And Paul says something similar in 1 Timothy 5 by talking about how to deal with sins of elders. Another example of how those of us who put on this collar have to take our responsibility to the community very seriously. Because when leaders sin, it has this greater effect on the whole community. Interestingly enough, before this passage on conflict management in Matthew, Jesus talks more about sin. He says, you should cut off your hand or pluck out your eye if either cause you to sin. And then anyone who causes a little one to sin, they would be better off tying a millstone around their neck and being thrown into the sea. But, lest we think that Jesus is only about harshness, after our reading, Peter asks Jesus, how many times ought I to forgive my brother? Jesus tells him, not seven, but 77 times. Not just a large number, but a contrast of the boastful vengeance of a notoriously vicious man, Lamech, in Genesis 4, who says, if Cain was avenged seven times, I will avenge him 77 times. Again, we see that while God despises sin and wants it purged from our midst, and for us to be sure not to harm one another, just like in Ezekiel, what Jesus wants even more is that the sinful turn from their ways and are forgiven. What God desires more is for his mercy to abound, not his vengeance. And the goal of all of this is the continual formation of God's people, the body of Christ. And in Romans 12, we see a list of the kinds of things that Paul exhorts the diverse Roman church to do in order to knit together its different parts. Listen again to some of what he says. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. He'll write that as far as it's up to us, we ought to live peaceably with all. He'll write that we ought to not look to avenge ourselves, but leave vengeance to God, blessing those who curse us. There is a whole sermon, there is a whole series of sermons that could be spent diving into each of these points, spending time meditating on this list. We tend to hit the first 11 chapters of Romans, the more theological section, as the main course of the book, and then treat these later chapters from 12 on as seasoning. But as Scott McKnight argues, Paul's main point in the letter is here in these last chapters. Paul's not writing a theological text with some helpful application at the end. He's appealing for Christian unity in a divided church and spends a few chapters establishing the theological foundation for the kinds of communal life that he's going to commend to the Roman Christians. This is the work of the church, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12. And then as we're transformed by him, we uniquely care for each other, making one new people out of a disparate and divided humanity, something we can only do with God's help. And while the community is where we're formed into the likeness of Christ, we have to commit ourselves individually to be formed into his likeness as well. We read from Psalm 119 this morning, which is this beautiful poem that speaks of David's love for God's word. 
I'm often a little bit nervous when I see that the psalm is from Psalm 119 because it is so long, and then I think, okay, we've only got a short snippet. But if you spend time sitting down and reading through the whole thing, it is this long, methodical poem talking about a love for God's law and the life that it gives. Here are all the ways that he talks about it just in this morning's snippet. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Your ordinances are good. I have longed for your precepts. My hope is in your ordinances. I will keep your law continually. I shall walk at liberty, for I have sought your precepts. I find my delight in your commandments because I love them. I will meditate on your statutes. My favorite story in the Gospels is the healing of the paralytic, where four friends carry him over to what is likely Jesus' own house, dig out the roof and lower him down. Sometimes we need others to bring us to Jesus because we can't bring ourselves. I have many times in my life been the one on that mat, unable to walk, who needed my friends to carry me, who needed the church to carry me. But sometimes we have to be the four friends, using our own strength to carry others. It isn't wrong to need help, but our goal should be Christian maturity in which we're able to carry others along. And Psalm 119 is this picture of a faithful life of regular and routine meditation on God and on his word that will form us into the kinds of people who can be those four friends, who can lift our wounded siblings and bring them to Jesus. But if you are like me, hearing all of this will strike you as a burden. This sermon could easily sound like all law, no grace. Go home and start back up your quiet time. Speaking for myself, I don't feel like I can add one more thing to my plate. My daily energy is spent. And when I can, it's so easy to slip into a mindset of legalism. Justin Early, in his book, The Common Rule, defines it this way. Legalism is the belief that the world hangs on what I do and that God and people love me based on how I perform. This is an important concept because it's the exact opposite of the gospel. God loves us not because of what we do, but rather in spite of what we do, in spite of our good deeds and our bad deeds. Legalism takes the unmerited love of God and bends it into something earned. And just like that, the world is about us and not about him, unquote. So here is where I want to pivot into a different kind of exhortation than what I usually give. I usually like to close sermons with sort of a pitch for how we might live and allow everybody individually to think of how this might apply in your life. I don't know your lives well enough to give you particular applications, and so I typically try and paint a picture. But it'll be a little bit different this morning. Typically around this time each year, we would be launching our plan for adult catechesis. And year after year, we have been blessed as a community by the diversity of gifted teachers in that 10 o'clock hour time slot. But right now, I don't want to invite you to sign up for another weekly event that you have to attend, another Zoom call that you have to stare at a screen for, one more thing to do. It might not describe all of us, but it seems like in general, our community feels like it's under a weight, navigating through trauma after trauma, working to simply get by. If you want to get stuck in a very long conversation with me, all you have to do is ask about my thoughts on how habits form our spiritual lives. In the last few years, books like You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, and The Common Rule by Justin Early have given me both grace to allow my own spiritual life to be 
something other than a 24-7 on-fire-for-Jesus experience, and at the same time giving me the kind of structure that I need to help me habituate virtue and form my own desires more and more to be directed to loving God and loving others. Each of the books I mentioned connect to ideas from monastic communities. So the rhythms of monastic life give structure and shape to the days of the people who live in it, directing them towards God. Much like the church year frames our years in such a way to keep Jesus at the center, these habits and capital R rules, like the rule of St. Benedict, break into each day and make God the center of the lives of the brothers and sisters. And it's easy for them because, I mean, other than selling everything, taking on vows of poverty and moving into the community, they have empty days. They can shape their days around their formal structured rules. But interestingly enough, these communities have a different kind, a third kind or a second kind of committed member called an oblate. Oblates are people who take on some parts of the monastic rule but don't live at the monastery or abbey. They are committed to that community and into some sort of rule of life while being unable to actually live in that center. As I was thinking about this over the last few weeks, it seems like right now we're all oblates of this community called All Souls. We're unable to properly live and gather together as the community of our church, even in the ways that it used to exist in the midst of segmented suburban life. Eight months ago, I might have been very critical of the ways in which we're not gathered as a community, as suburbanites with our white picket fences, but now I long for those limited gatherings that we even had. So for catechesis this fall, here's the pitch. We're asking for everyone at All Souls to commit to a rule of life. Using Early's The Common Rule as our foundation, he has eight habits that comprise his rule, four of them daily and four of them weekly. But... As I already pointed out, life is so chaotic and busy and weighty and burdensome that what we're asking everybody to commit to is simply this. Pray three times a day for our church in general and for each other in particular. That's the rule. As a community that's gone through a lot and still has a lot to go through, it has never been more important for us to care for each other to speak truthfully to each other, hold each other accountable, bear each other's burdens, and love each other. But sometimes that can feel like a big ask. Sometimes it's hard to get out of ourselves and care for one another. So the way that we can be formed into a community that does this well is by framing our days with prayer for each other, refusing to allow our own schedules of work or whatever we have going on the home to supersede a different type of schedule that breaks in and disrupts us to stop and pray for each other. Now, we're putting a lot of extra resources on the catechesis page on our website to help give more flesh to this keystone habit. You can use the daily prayer page for a simplified morning prayer liturgy that'll have the psalm and the readings and a cycle of names to pray for from our church, always including, including clergy, vestry, and some regular attenders. So you can use that to frame it. You can incorporate another piece of Early's Common Rule by making sure that one of those three prayer times happens with scripture before you check your email or social media. He has a daily habit called scripture before screens. And that way your day begins with a recognition of who God is and how he's forming you and his love for you before your day starts with your to-do list. You can check out his website, which has additional resources and ideas, and even a unique spin on his book that is about forming spiritual rhythms every day during Corona Tide. 
And if you want the book itself, which I highly recommend, we've bought a whole bunch of copies so that everyone can have a copy for themselves or for their home and they can dive in and read it. And all these extra resources, they're on the All Souls page. And like I said, I highly recommend any of them to start to build upon this keystone habit. The goal is not to add burdens to your day, but give you rhythms that allow you to have an awareness of God's presence. But at the end of the day, that can be a lot for anybody. Different people have different struggles right now. Different people entered into quarantine with too much time on their hands and some with not enough. And so what we're asking everybody to commit to is this simple process. Pray for each other three times a day. Like all habits, it's going to be a slow burn. I can't guarantee that you'll have an ecstatic vision into the heavenly throne room by the end of the week. But I do believe that it'll be the keystone habit that can reorient our hearts to love God and love each other that it'll pay back dividends in the formation, not just of our own individual lives, but the life of our community. So that our commitments to each other are no longer a burden, but an outpouring of our common prayer life lived together. Early talks about starting the day with praying on our knees like this, and I actually think our common rule will have a similar effect. He says, quote, a keystone habit is a super habit. It's the first domino in the line. By changing one habit, we simultaneously change 10 other habits. Beginning the day in kneeling prayer is such a keystone habit. In morning prayer, we frame the first words of the day in God's love for us, which is to say we uproot the weeds of legalism that grow if we simply do nothing, and we lay the first piece of the day's trellis on which love can grow. So my prayer for us this morning and in all the weeks to come is that God continues to form all of us individually and as a church to become his people. That in committing ourselves to this rhythm of thrice daily prayer for one another, we find a new awareness of God's presence in our lives and a knowledge of his love for us and for each other. And that in doing so, we become not just a community who can speak truth to each other, but that love each other. That we might all turn from sin towards Christ, carrying one another to the great physician. Amen.